This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. There was very little interest at all in elderberries. And then over the last five years, it's just been growing and growing and growing. And it's like, okay. I'd like to welcome everybody to The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I am your co-host, Ashley Olson, with the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension, serving as the agriculture educator in Vernon County. And joining me today as my co-host is Jerry Clark, and he serves as the agriculture educator in Chippewa County. Jerry, how's it going up that way this morning? Hi, Ashley. Um it's been kind of cool the last uh, couple of weeks here. So I think uh, spring, it says spring on the calendar, but I, we even had a wind chill report the other day. <laughs> so I think uh, we need uh, some warmer weather to get moving here in order for uh, the plant, the planting and growing season to really be official, I think. Yeah. And I'm a few hours uh, south of you. We're dry. And um, I'd like to welcome both of our guests we have today. We have uh, Mike Breckel joining us from Vernon County, Wisconsin, not too far from uh, myself being in Vernon County, along with David Hanley from the University of Maine. So um, we'll be getting some lots of perspective here today. And with that, uh, Mike, if you want to start out introducing yourself and then David, that would be great. Alrighty. Um, my name is Mike Breckel and I'm, uh, I've retired from working at Gunderson Lutheran Hospital in La Crosse. Uh, at, I worked there on an information uh, and crisis line for 23 years. And um, right now I'm spending my time growing elderberries and helping my daughter with her um, maple syrup business. We live between Westby and Coon Valley about 20, 25 miles east, southeast of La Crosse. Uh, I'm David Handley. I'm the vegetable and small fruit specialist for the University of Maine Cooperative Extension. I spend most of my time with berry crops as we have another vegetable specialist here. And uh, we too, uh, like you guys are talking about, have had a lot of interest in elderberries lately. So we've been working with them here at the University of Maine uh, with a small variety trial and also with uh, some startup commercial production as well. You know, how did, Mike, did you get into growing elderberries and, and where did your interest come from? Um, it's kind of a long and convoluted story, but I'll make it as short as, as possible here. I'll try to. <laughs> uh, my first introduction to elderberries was actually using the, the uh, stems, hollowing out the pith of the stems and using them to tap maple trees back in the 1970s after reading a book by Ewell Gibbons, uh, Stalking the Wild Asparagus. And that's, I guess that kind of dates me. Um, after that, I kind of, um, elderberries kind of went by the wayside a little bit. And it um, wasn't until the mid nineties that a, a neighbor who was uh, disabled asked me to help him make some elderberry wine. He knew I had been brewing beer for quite a while. and. He thought beer, wine, it's all the same stuff. So 
Um, but because he couldn't gather his own elderberries, I was, it was my job to gather the elderberries. He would destem them by hand, and then we'd juice them and make wine. Uh, that continued till about uh, the year 2000, 2001, somewhere in there, when my lovely wife, Rita, uh, discovered a article in the Vernon Memorial Hospital newsletter about elderberries being antiviral. Um, at the time, on my, my work on the information line, we were giving out lots of information about uh, one of the flu viruses, whether it was SARS or Mars or bird flu, one of those, uh, all of whom were, were viruses. And so I thought, huh, this is interesting. And so I went to the hospital librarian and said, you know, I'm not part of the medical uh, part of this hospital, but is there any way I can get this research? And she said, I don't know, but I'll look into it. Um, I knew her from playing volleyball. And uh, she said, if, if I find it, you owe me a beer. So I, uh, I said, fine. Um, two days, the next time I went to work, which was, I think, two days later, um, in my email, there was the entire um, research project by Madeline, and I'm going to kill the last name here, but it's um, uh from uh, Hebrew University in Tel Aviv, I believe it was, from the abstract, which was fairly straightforward. It was obvious that she found that elderberries did have a definite statistically significant effect on several flu viruses. Number of people studied was very small. It was one kibbutz in Israel, but the difference was significant. So I thought that's, I've got to, I've got to do something about that. Um, in the meantime, uh, a house fire set me back a little bit, and so it wasn't until 2006 that I planted my first elderberries. Um, in the meantime, between mid-90s and, and mid-aughts, uh, um, the county and uh, the township had started spraying the roadsides uh, with pesticides and stuff like that, and, and herbicides to kill and it wound up killing an awful lot of the elderberries, or at least made me uncomfortable picking them. Um, so in 2006, I planted my first elderberries, about 250 plants, uh, and it was it was kind of a nursery run. Uh, I didn't know anything about elderberries in terms of varieties and that, so I I just planted 250. Uh, <laughs> they they advertise standard American elderberry and tall American elderberry. And so I had 10% tall and the rest were, not, were standard. Um, in 2011, I heard of a gathering in um, uh, Hartsburg, um, Missouri at, at the farm of Terry Durham uh, for elderberry growers. And I took the opportunity to go down there. And it was really interesting because it was the first time there were like, 25 to 50 people who were actually interested in growing elderberries. Some had grown elderberries. Terry had been growing elderberries for a few years. 
and uh, it was kind of an exciting thing. One of the thing, one of their practices down there was to uh, mow their elderberries down every year, and um, let them send up new stalks uh, or new stems every year, and then they would the, they would produce bigger heads, and they would be a little bit more determinate. Um, so the next year in 2012, I, I, I wasn't completely sold on the idea. Uh, so I did an experiment, half of my rows I cut, half I didn't. And the ones I cut, I got tremendous growth. Uh, they were probably a foot or two taller than the ones I didn't cut, but I got absolutely zero flowers and zero, therefore zero berries. Um, so Mike, if I could just jump in here a minute, um, and just, uh, maybe I'll ask David, what are some of those, um, early, uh, I guess, production techniques that you'd look at for elderberry from a standpoint of, um, the standard versus tall or, or mowing versus not mowing those kind of things? Well, believe it or not, and as, as Mike implied, we're, we're actually still working on that in, in that there's still a lot of research going on. I mean, if you let the, the, bush do what it wants to do, it will be a fairly good sized shrub and it, it can get up 10 feet or more, uh, depending on how long it's been there and what location it's in, how much shade it's getting and so forth, uh, they tend to stretch. The older bushes tend to get taller just like any bush because the new growth is looking for light and it's struggling with what's around it. So it keeps creeping upward and upward. So if you cut it short every year, you tend to get a shorter growth habit out of it, uh, unless there's a lot of fertilizer down there and it will go but it is one that will break from the roots pretty easily. So you can mow it down. And it does, unlike a lot of other uh, berry crops that we work with, it will fruit on this year's wood. If you look at a blueberry, for example, it fruits on two-year-old wood, grapes likewise. So you can't do this with a bush like that. You mow it down, it's gonna be two or three years before you're back in production. Uh, elderberries, no, you, you can mow them. The question has been, and this is one of the things they're looking at in Missouri and, and other places, if we mow it, uh, is that's awful hard on the storage system, which is down in the roots, to keep replenishing that growth every year. And is there adequate time for the leaves on that one year to, to replenish all the nutrients it needs down in there? Or are you slowly depleting the resources that the bush needs to continue growing? So there's some thought that mowing can work, but it might be something that you only want to do every other year or every third year or something along those lines to basically rejuvenate it. And this is not dissimilar from how we, we deal with some other crops, wild blueberries, for example. Um, but left to itself, it'll be a full-size uh, plant. Um, but you have to figure with any bush what it wants to do versus what you want it to do and how much... <laughs> time and effort you're willing to put into it to get it to do what you want it to do, which in this case is more fruit ripening, hopefully at the same time and uh, having good commercial quality. And that's where the pruning and the fertilization and all that sort of stuff comes in. That's a, that's a good, uh, and maybe Mike can comment on this as well, but I'll ask you first, David, is um, so that when it fruits, is it, it all the fruit come out at the same time or do you, is it, you know, you pick just the ripe ones and then let the rest uh, kind of, mature on its own or? Most of the varieties we've selected of the American type, the Sambucus canadensis, will ripen pretty uniformly, okay. uh, especially if you're, you're doing a pretty good job of pruning. So you have wood that's all roughly the same age. Typically what we want to do is prune so we have one, two, and three-year-old canes and not much else. Older stuff goes out because that tends to ripen later. Um, 
So we just do that. And then, then we, we tend to be able to go over and do a once over harvest if you're doing it by hand, which is how most people are doing it. You, you might go over it a second time to pick up the late stuff. This is one of the disadvantages of the European type, uh, Symbucus nigrum, which is what's grown over the pond, so to speak, is that we find that we grow it here. Not only do we have winter hardiness problems, but it does not tend to ripen uniformly. It tends to dribble along into the late summer and fall, and it becomes a pain in the neck to get all your crop in when you want it to get in so you can start processing it. Because this is a processing crop. This, you know, it needs to be dried, it needs to be squished and used for juice. It's not really a fresh market crop. Okay. My experience was that um, at least the bushes that I had, again, through with a nursery run, they weren't producing on the, on the first year. You know, um, again, I knew nothing about them and they, they were not varietals. They were not selected for any particular thing, uh, characteristics. And um, um, so that's, that's where I was. And I, so I started basically pruning selectively pruning back, uh, almost like with grapes, cutting back considerably, but not cutting them all the way down to the ground. And then on my second year growth, I got decent berry production then. Uh, I think if the bush is, is, is stressed hard and, and mowing it might do that, especially to a young bush, it might quote unquote, take a year off from fruiting. But typically with a mature bush, you will get some yield. Just okay. to your other point about, you know, your, your, what you started with were just selections of uh, short or tall. It's interesting that even the varieties that are available, a lot of those are selections from the wild. They're not actually intended and crossed with intention. Uh, you have to go back a ways to get things like uh, Adams and York, but most of the stuff coming out of Missouri, for example, are just selections from the wild. Um, and even some stuff coming out more recently is are just selections from the wild. There's nothing wrong with that, uh, but it's just a, an interesting point that there hasn't been a lot of breeding work done with elderberry, at least uh, certainly not in this millennia. And even in the last one, there wasn't a whole lot done with it because the stuff in the wild is actually pretty darn good. Um, and there hasn't really been the demand, the pressure on breeders to, to produce a, a better plant. I'm intrigued by this because Mike started talking about a couple of varieties that he started with um, kind of as an experiment. David, you mentioned a variety that I can't pronounce. I apologize the name. And so how then do you determine or Mike, like how, how do you, and David, even with, with the research you're doing out there, how, so then how do you know what varieties to plant or mix or they're wild for the product that, I, I mean, so how do you know, like, I guess for the final product, how do you know what you want then? Or is this still, you're still working on that? That's, that's kind of my job. Uh, one of the we, do, we do the variety trials and so that growers don't go out and buy a bunch of plants that aren't going to work. work. Let me take the lump so you don't have to, is it? Because, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make a elderberry farm here. So one of the things we found out really quickly was that the selections that they're doing in southern Missouri aren't selections that are going to work in hardiness zone four and five. It, it doesn't work. Um, those, those were winter killing. The other thing we found is that the nigrums, the European types, really don't like it up here. Uh, there is one uh, called Marge that seems to be doing very well. There's some thought that that might actually be a, a interspecific hybrid between the Canadensis and the nigrum, but that, as far as I know, that hasn't been, been proven one way or the other yet. Um, but that's the only one of those that I would recommend. But so far, none of the Missouri stuff has done well. 
It's the stuff that was bred in Canada and New York that seems to be doing fairly well here. So we lean back and say, look at the older stuff and some of the newer selections from that. Uh, for example, Coomer and Good Barn are some newer selections. But again, they're selections from the wild. We even have some selections here walking around this experiment station. There's plenty of wild elderberry around. And we found some that we said, golly, the fruit on this is larger than anything in our variety trial. So we made some cuttings, we cleaned them up, and now they're in the variety trial, Highmore 1 and Highmore 2. Um, so that's not necessarily a bad thing to do if you're thinking of growing elderberries is to take a look around you uh, and see if there's some decent plants there. One nice thing about elderberries is they are very easy to propagate. You can take hardwood cuttings or softwood cuttings, and if you know your way around a propagation book, you can figure it out pretty quickly. That's basically, that's what I've been doing here, uh, uh, David. I, I found that Bob Gordon, Wildwood, just were not suitable for my, I've got Ridgeland that's very heavily clay and they just did nothing here. Uh, I've had Wildwood in, one Wildwood, I put in 50 of each and I got one Wildwood that survived and zero Bob Gordon. Um, of the Wildwood, I don't think I've gotten one berry off of that in seven or eight or more than that, almost 10 years. They just come up and they grow, but they just don't, they just don't, they flower, but they just don't bury. So I, what I've been doing is exactly what you're, you're suggesting. I've got probably 20 or 30 different, I'm gonna call them lines because I don't, I don't know enough about how you classify varieties, how, how you set those aside, but 20 or 30 different lines of wild elderberries that I've gone out and Vernon, all through Vernon County, and I've gotten ones from all over the place, up in, in, the, in the Driftless area here, to, that were just great in the wild, brought them back, cloned them, and uh, my thinking was, was that with that genetic pool, eventually we were going to get some really good uh, varieties that were uh, adapted to this area. And I really think that the elderberries themselves do a good job of adapting themselves to whatever location they're in, you know. Um, and I leave my, oh, I've got 100 or 200 migrants that come through every year and pick the berries and eat them and then deposit them around my farm and around everybody else's farm in the area and I go around every year and pick out ones that have characteristics that I, I'm looking for, which is primarily determinant, at least within the head. Whole, whole plant determinant is difficult to do with elderberries, but at least within the head. So when you pick the head, all of the berries are, are ripe at the same time. Also that the berries aren't gonna drop uh, berry drop is a major problem with at least wild elderberries. And, um, and then head size, that was the, that's the third criteria that I use. And it's over the last 20 years, I've, I've gone, picked the best of the best and then found something out on the edge of my woods or on in my fence line and brought it back. And so I, that's basically I'm doing similar things there, but David, I'm trying to run a berry farm too. <laughs> uh, so, da so David is the, so the, the, el the American elderberry, that, that's a native, correct? I mean, is that, correct. Um, correct. it's been here 
long time anyway. And yeah. so is that self-pollinating? Do you need, is it just, it takes care of itself as long as you get a American elderberry, you're good to go? Thought to be mostly wind pollinated and okay. somewhat self-infertile, but if there's nothing else around, they, they usually will pollinate. You'll get much better set in fruit size if it's got friends and neighbors around, okay. uh, but mostly wind pollinated. Um, so yeah, and, and, and it is a native, uh, there's records, you know, the, the native people who were here used it. Um, as, as Mike said, uh, no, no better way to get a natural tubing than, than elderberry cane uh, to tap maple trees or whatever use you, you might find for it. Um, it is important to note that as far as edibility is concerned, it's, it's only the right fruit and the flowers uh, the rest of the plant is actually toxic. Um, so it's something to consider if you're planning on growing elderberries is do you have kids around who are kind of curious and put everything in their mouths? Um, this would not be a good bush for that, especially the roots, but pretty much all the plant parts except for the right, the right fruit and the flowers are toxic. So Ashley shouldn't pasture her cattle out there if that's part of the case. <laughs> cattle are usually pretty smart and don't eat it. So <laughs> they're smarter than we are, right? Yeah. Yeah, they know what to avoid. Yeah. <laughs> Having said that, though, Jerry, deer will browse it. And deer can be a, a big problem for it. If, yeah. you, if you've got a, a healthy deer herd around, when they butt out in the springtime, deer think that is a delicacy and they will go after it. Well, that's, that's a great uh, segue, I guess. Something about uh, pest management. I mean, being a native, it probably doesn't require a lot or is there some na some natural pests that get into this, uh, this it, plant? It's a native but unfortunately the biggest pest problem we, right, we have right now is not and, and that is a spotted wing drosophila which is an exotic pest. It arrived on our shores yep. this time in 2009. I thought it came uh, several times before that but fortunately we were able to eradicate it. This time we weren't okay. and it got to us by 2011. I don't know when it hit Wisconsin. I think it was a little later than that. It's Yeah we've had it the last maybe five years. It's maybe been a little longer than that in yeah. certain parts of the state but it's been over the last decade anyway. It likes dark colored fruit and it likes soft fruit and elderberry fits both of those categories and the populations are really high toward the end of the season. Again elderberry fits that category very well so it is a good host for it. And Mike, you experienced that, correct? Actually, that's how I met Ashley. I, uh, I was trying to sell some elderberries at the farmer's market and I had picked them and sanitized them and very, very happy with them, looked beautiful, had them in little trays and I, it was a night market and I setting up the, at the night market and I looked down and there was something seemed to be moving in the elderberries. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I opened it up and I'm looking and there were just these little white little spots in there. And so I thought, well, I repacked everything, put it back in the truck and went home. And I went up the next day or the next time Ashley was in the office and uh, said, uh, can you test these for SWD? And she did. And it turned out to be positive. Now, that was the only year I've had trouble with them, though. That was the only year. Yeah, so it's, it's been a regular year, but my, my SWD story is, is we, we were out in the variety trial one time on a Friday afternoon, and we looked and we said, oh, this is perfect. These, these berries have ripened just right. We'll pick them first thing on Monday. I, I, I'll come in Monday morning and take photos of them, and then we'll do the harvest. So we went in Monday morning, and all of them had shattered. I mean, most of the fruit was on the ground. So my so we went down and we started looking, we started squeezing them. And then like you said, they, they, they were just loaded with maggots. And we were like, uh-oh, here we go. 
So that was our lesson in SWD and elderberry. So. So, so the processing side of this then, so yeah, you get this fruit and then um, of course, my, hopefully minus the maggots or this spotted wing drosophila that's in there. And then, uh, so it's mainly a processing fruit. So we grow these on these shrubs, uh, harvest uh, late summer, early fall, is that kind of the time frame? And then uh, I guess David and Mike, if we wanna to respond to the kind of the comment on the harvesting side and then where we're headed with processing. My, my earliest start about the, uh first or second week in August. Well, you're, you're earlier than us. We're, we're usually earliest would be mid-August. Most of it's late August, early September. I've got one, one line of that from the wild that basically produces about two weeks earlier. And that one starts the first week. And then the majority of the crop is uh, middle of August till the first frost. Uh, you, you might have something there, Mike. If you get a variety that's early enough ripening, uh, the nice thing about that is the earlier they ripening, the less trouble with SWD you're going to have. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it is only the late season where you really, you really get hit with that. Yep. And, and right now it's pretty much all hand harvest. There are apparently some mechanized units over uh, again across the pond in Europe, but it's hand harvest. So it's somewhat labor intensive and it is pretty much a processing crop. There is some fresh shales, as Mike said, you can go to farmer's markets with it, but people are gonna take them home and squish them and make juice and jelly and wine uh, or whatever, but it's not really a fresh eating crop. And then of course, I, there's the other 100 pound, 500 pound gorilla in the room. And that, that is that once you, you buy them on the sime, on the stem, and those stems have to come off no matter what you're doing with them. If you're gonna squish them, um, to get that juice, you want the, the stems out of there. So another labor intensive end of things is, is trying to get those little stems off. And there's several methods of doing it. I'm not sure what, what Mike uses, but there are several methods. Well, actually I've, I've invented a destemmer. Great. Uh, and it's, um, I can do just, uh, I saw Terry's destemmer down in Missouri and that just seemed, it just didn't seem efficient to me. And again, I, I love Terry but I just thought there might be a more efficient way to do it. And um, I was told by the engineers down there that it wasn't, my idea wouldn't work. And so that of course made me say, uh, I think it will. <laughs> and uh, so basically over in, in 2014, I went down in the basement and made a destemmer and um, it's, based on, a, on an, a rotating cylinder, almost like a combine or any other thing like that. Um, but it, it will do, it was designed to go right down the row and actually destem in the field. And um, you still have to hand hard, you still have to hand pick them, but you can come out of, you come out of the field with your, your baskets of, of, uh, of berries and no stems. The stems are left right back on the field. Uh, um, and in a stationary operation, just feeding it by hand, I can do well over 100 pounds an hour. So that's, um, and the berries come out pretty much unscathed. They're, they're not split you know, they're, they're, they're whole berries, which is what the market wants. Um, if you want to, uh, David, if you want to take a look, it's, if you go to my Facebook page, 
Okooch Mountain elderberries, um, there's a video of it on there. I was just gonna say I, that the video that you had sent us, Mike, um, prior to this is is pretty neat to watch the short YouTube video that that of the December that you created, and so. Um, that might be something those of you listening here today on our Cutting Edge podcast uh, may want to go check out. And Mike, one more time, did you want to um, repeat that that Facebook page that you have so listeners could sure. check it's it out? Okooch Mountains, that's O-C-O-O-C-H, Mountain Elderberries. And it's my, that's my, if you go there and you go to the, my Facebook page, it's right up there and it, it's kind of a fun video my my son-in-law videoed it and when i was designing the whole thing it, that was my dream but it took me 10 years to go from something i made in the basement to my one son-in-law and a who's an engineer and an, a friend of his coming up with a food grade motorized version of this thing that was made of scrap plywood and and angle iron that I found in the basement to something that really is a very efficient uh, uh, tool for getting past that bottleneck in elderberry production. Well, that's what, that's what farmers do is invent stuff, right? That's, that's always, if you got a welder and a saw, you can usually come up with something made. Um, David, Mike brought something up about um, the, uh, the production side. What are we looking at for yield in terms? Is it pounds per bush, pounds per acre, or how many plants per acre per thousand square feet? Just some of that general production type information. What what should a grower kind of expect? It depends on the spacing that they're they're going to use. Typically, we would we would plant at uh, about five feet apart. The bushes five feet apart. I've seen them a lot closer than that. I've seen them a little further apart. It depends on your your pruning practices. Uh, I'd like to see at least 10 feet between the rows if you're having more than one row because you need to get down in between there and once those slimes are loaded with fruit they're going to drape down and weep and you driving any equipment through there you're just going to put a lot of fruit on the ground and waste it if you don't give them their space. Uh, plus you're going to get lots of air movement and light between the rows then and that will keep the plants dry and give you a lot less trouble with with uh, fungal disease problems and so forth. So at that rate, you're planting somewhere between six and 800 bushes per acre. Um, and most of the data we've seen is you're gonna be pulling in somewhere between four and eight pounds of fruit per bush if everything is going well. Um, some growers have gotten much better than that. Uh, some growers struggle to get that. It really depends on site and management. Um, one of the biggest uh, problems we run into is, is one, people plant them too close. Uh, first, they say, oh, 10 feet between rows, that's ridiculous. I it's way too much space. I haven't got that much room. So they crowd them in there. Uh, and then what happens is they can't get down between the rows. So the weeds come up and really do a job. Uh, in the first few years, elderberries are very poor competitors. You have to do a good job in those first few years. Once the bushes get established, they do a pretty good job of shading out what's underneath them. But those first couple of years are critical in terms of keeping the weeds down. So um, getting growers to prep their site properly, especially getting the weeds under control prior to planting is, is the biggest chore we often have, the biggest challenge we often have. With them. Um, but as you can see, if, if you're getting that many, you're, you're getting considerable yield per acre. Um, so it may not take that much, you know, you may not be looking at a 20 acre plantation and you're still going to have enough fruit to, to bring to market or to process yourself. Um, and I think that's the big question you have to ask yourself when you're sitting down saying, I'm going to be an elderberry grower because you know these are 
uh, you know, the nutraceutical value of these is great. I really want to have some. Um, okay, what are you going to do with them? Um, and if it's not you, Who who's going to buy them from you? Um, that's one of the things we ran into here in New England is people started growing them and looking around and saying, well, wait a minute, I thought people were going to be knocking on my door asking for these things. And generally that's not the case. You need to go and find someone who wants to process them to make some wine, to make some, uh, in our case, we have a, a woman who's making some different syrups and tinctures with them, doing very well with that, by the way. Uh, but she's become pretty much the market for a lot of the growers, um, which is good in some ways, but scary in others, because that means someone else is controlling the price. Um, so if you're doing this commercially, you need to think about that. And maybe you know, a lot of the growers have said, well, I'm not happy with that. So I'm going to either make some products myself, or I'm going to take fresh fruit to market and encourage other people to do it. Um, yeah, I, I would agree that finding the market um, is, is the crucial element for any grower because um, you can't compete with the price of European elderberries. You know, you just can't. Um, and so you've got you've to find uh, either individuals or uh, small, I, at this point, small scale processors that are willing to, that, are, that, are, that understand the value of the elderberries and are willing to uh, process them for you. Or like you say, process them yourself to jellies, jams, syrups, um, or an additive to something else. Uh, I, it's really strange because over the last six months, I've seen several vitamin companies advertising on televisions that they have uh, dried elderberry in them. And they're very, they're, they're right there pushing that. So I don't know if that market is going to be a permanent market or if it's kind of like the flavor of the month type uh, thing. And that's, that's going to be a, a deciding factor on terms of whether elderberries can be a, a viable alternative crop or not. You know, it, like when we had the hops shortage, hops were very, very important. Uh, there was a big push for those, but then all of a sudden the market fell out of that. And um, I've, I grow hops for myself and people have been trying to, I, I would come home and sometimes there would be hops, rhizomes just waiting for me. And I have no idea where they came from, you know? <laughs> so Mike, you, um, as a grower and, uh, you know, you've been working with this and, and researching as, as well, um, with what you're doing, you, well, I should back this, up a little bit. So in Viroqua, we have a food enterprise production center where lots of businesses can um, rent out space to produce their product. And, and Mike, did you mention that you are going to be in there or, or you are in there producing product with your elderberries? Um, some of my elderberries will be in there. Okay. Um, um, there is a, a, um, Oh, I have to be, I have to brag a little bit. <laughs> That's okay. My, we still got to keep going. We got time. We want to hear it. <laughs> my, my daughter's uh, maple syrup business, they make bourbon barrel aged maple syrup. That's been their hallmark. That's where they age their maple syrup in bourbon barrels. And basically it adds a tremendous amount of taste to it. 
their new product, they're, they're coming up with an additional product line and it's a energy drink called Embark. And um, it is uh, salted maple, salted coffee maple, and elderberry maple. So within the next few months, and, and they and they're, they're, uh, they process their things at the Food Enterprise Center in Viroqua. So oh, okay, so that's where the elderberries will be coming into the Enterprise Center. And also, my destemmers will be made there. There, there's a Oppen um, Oppen uh, uh, Works basically will be uh, doing the manufacturing of the elderberry destemmer. And they're working on a production line uh, model, working out all the kinks now for for uh, being able to put those out in in numbers. Any idea what that's going to run for cost? <laughs> right now, again, it's hard saying because we haven't got a production set up yet, but there, we're looking at somewhere around $6,000, okay. 6000 6500 something like that. You're, you're still running less than most of the distemmers I've seen. They're up around eight or 10000 So that- Oh, yeah. Terry's is, is, is nine to 10000 Yeah. And it takes two people to run this. You run it right down the row and you're- you have no additional cost to destemming, basically. That's true. I, I, there's going to be some people interested in that. That's great. Well, that is that that is uh, interesting, and uh, and to see this, you know, coming all these different um, products, and and then this destemmer that's going to be come available commercially. That's just awesome, Mike. That's that's really cool. Um, it, it, it's it to me, it's kind of mind-boggling because for almost 20 years. Seeing the, the advantages and, and the tremendous um, benefits of elderberries, you know, all the way back to Hippocrates, who basically said elderberries are the medicine chest of the country folks. That was thousands of years ago, <laughs> you know, and seeing that and all of a sudden it was just, there was very little interest at all in elderberries. And then over the last five years, it's just been growing and growing and growing. And it's like, okay. <laughs> so, so David, at, uh, with your work there at the University of Maine, um, are, there, are there medical colleges or schools looking at that medicinal side of this? I know we're in that, seems like we're in that age now where there's a lot of claims. And of course, with social media, you can say this, this, and this works and this, you know, type of thing. But is anyone... Um, that you know of uh, looking at it from a m medical research side of things that um, we know there's antioxidants, vitamins and that kind of thing, but something that actually does part of the, um, you know, slowing down viruses and these kind of things. There is some work going on. There was some work going on at the, the University of Maine with not only elderberries, but a couple of other things, aronia and some of these other really dark colored berries um, because they do contain high numbers of antioxidants, anti-radicals, mostly from uh, phenolic compounds and polyphenolic compounds and flavonoids. This, this whole group of chemicals that seems to be really good at attacking uh, and binding to the chemicals that are, are thought to cause um, well, aging in, in some regards, a breakdown of, of cells and so forth. Um, so far, uh, what we've been seeing in most of this research is that at a, at a very small level, at the chemical level, the biochemical level, and to some extent at the cellular level, we can see these effects. 
what happens when you throw it into a full-blown biological system, like a rat or a person, the effects don't seem to be quite as clear. Um, and, and that's kind of where we're at right now. There's some studies in Europe that are saying we haven't seen any long-term effects of these things, certainly no negative effects, uh, but no long-term beneficial effects. Some of the stuff that's coming out in the U.S. is now saying, well, no, we are seeing some what, what look to be potential benef uh, beneficial effects. But I think, um, as Mike was saying earlier, we're really in our infancy here in terms of being able to understand how this stuff works. But anecdotally, for centuries, millennia really, people have said these seem to, to help us when uh, we either as preventatives or to shorten the duration of, of illnesses. And that's kind of what we've got to track down is where are those connections at? From my perspective, um, be it elderberries or aronia or whatever the flavor of the month is, um, there's no magic pill here. Um, what, what's more important for, for people to understand is if that you have a diet that's rich in fruit, especially dark colored fruit, we know that now, but also rich in vegetables. Again, high colored vegetables tend to be uh, higher in, in these phenolic compounds. Uh, you're gonna be healthier, that's all there is to it. So a good diet that has a lot of fruit and vegetables as a base uh, is gonna create a, a much healthier diet and, and a less uh, problems, health problems, than someone who's not following that kind of diet, somebody who's going with you know, mostly a heavy protein, heavy fat diet. So that's where we're at. It, to, to me, it's to get people to eat more fruit. I don't care what kind of fruit it is, just eat more fruit. And if you go for the dark colored stuff, uh, that, all the better, but eat more fruit. <laughs> the University of Missouri uh, College of Medicine is, is doing, has been doing some research as well. Uh, it's uh, the Sun Memorial, Dr. Albert Sun Memorial uh, is, um, he was one of the leaders in doing research. When we were down at the first international symposium on elderberries uh, at University of Missouri, we actually got up and saw some of the research there. And the research that we particularly saw was on um, dementia and uh, in mice, a uh, controlled group of people that, the control group versus mice that got um, freeze-dried elderberry added to their diet. And you could actually see the difference in the speed of how they ran the, the mazes. So again, there's lots, and at this symposium, there were research, medical researchers and growers there from 20 different countries. And the, the, everything is on a very small scale at this point um, and very preliminary. But uh, the breadth of what's being investigated, was, it, it was just kind of mind-boggling to me. Um, and, and the results were not conclusive on, on, on any of these because they were so small, but they gave hints that it, it may be. I, I agree with you, David, completely elderberry uh, or any fruit or any vegetable is not a miracle cure for anything. But it helps your body. It helps your body act the way it should. It, uh, uh, so anyhow, that's, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> so along those lines, um, kind of, I guess the, one of the final questions I would have is the, from a marketing, <laughs> from a marketing uh, s standpoint, uh, we know we got to process it. Uh, is, is there a point, I guess, David, I'll ask you first and then we can go to Mike, but uh, when do we saturate the market or is, is there lots of opportunity to, 
you know, when we when we reach that commodity point where the prices crash, like Mike said with hops, but is elderberry still something that you know has a, a room for as an alternative crop on a small farm, or have we just uh, is that market not there? Uh, I think there is still room for marketing elderberries. Um, however, I, you need to make that decision before you stick a plant in the ground. Am I going to be marketing these, or am I going to be depending on someone else to market these? And if you're going to be dependent on a processor, just understand that there's probably not a lot of competition there. So that processor is going to set the price. And if three guys down the road set up elderberry farms too, you can see that price is going down and you have no control over that. Uh, suddenly it doesn't look so good. So it's always best to have a diversified market and say, okay, so I'm planning, I'm going to sell some to processors, but I'm also going to either make some jelly myself, uh, make some syrup, or I'm just going to take fresh fruit to the uh, farmer's market or uh, put it out on Facebook that I have fresh elderberries and you can come and, and, and get them. So there are some alternatives there. Putting all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, when it comes to marketing is never a good idea, especially if you're a small farmer. Um, so take a look around at the markets that are there. But I think with the continued interest we have in these kind of fruit the, and the potential health benefits from them, um, there's a strong market. But the big caveat with, with elderberries and some of these other fruit is, is that it has to be processed. Um, you've got an extra hurdle that you have to go over. It's not like strawberries or not like blueberries where people want to come and eat them. You know, they've got an extra step and that's going to discourage a lot of people. They don't want to take that step. They want you to do it for them or somebody else to do it for them. I, I think that any small producer has of elderberries or anything else, they have a second crop that they have to cultivate and that is their customers, you know, and whether, whether that's direct, I, I sell the vast majority of my elderberries on a pick your own basis. They pick the elderberries, I destem them. They leave with a smile because they've got berries that they can do whatever they want with. Um, but again, cultivating that customer base is just as important as cultivating your, your elderberries. Um, uh, and, and word does spread uh, by word of mouth. Uh, and if you treat your customers right and you have the, the wherewithal to get out there in, in the media and stuff, um, that's, that's as important as being able to uh, produce a, a healthy crop. And do you have anything else, Mike, that you would want to add for, say, somebody thinking about getting into elderberries? You talked a little bit, but any, any other I words of wisdom from a grower? <laughs> and I, I, and I, that goes for David, too. Any other words say, of wisdom? I would say start small. Make your mistakes on a small level, small scale. Learn about the, the crop on a small scale. And then as you're cultivating your, your customers, um, grow to meet that demand. Because I'm, I'm, I've, I've had people call me almost in tears because they were convinced to put in 25 acres of elderberries and they had 25 acres of elderberries in, free, in the freezer, costing them to keep them in the freezer and they had no market for them. After last year, that market disappeared. I mean, that, those elderberries disappeared because of the COVID virus. Uh, but again, it's going to be cyclical. It's going to, the market is going to go up and down. But if you can have um, 
if you can have a base of customers that want them and want to process them themselves or a processor, that's going to be your best. Um, I agree a hundred percent. And it's, it's do your homework, really do your homework before you put a plant in the ground, understand what you're getting yourself into, not only in terms of growing the plants, but where you're going to sell them, who's going to buy them and then take your time. Um, start out small, as Mike said, so you learn the game as you go and, and do the soil prep. Um, that's just critical, get the ground ready, um, or you, you will save so many headaches. Uh, so many people get discouraged because they start in a hurry, they don't do the prep, the weeds take over, the pests take over, uh, and they get discouraged. And if they'd just taken the time, sat back and taken a year to get ready for it, it would have been a whole different story. Oh, one other thing I wanted to add in terms of, of it's not a pest, but it's, it's a rust. Elderberry rust is, last year was just major for me. Um, out of my one field, I've got two different uh, fields. Out of my one, out of my south side field, I took over a hundred pounds of elderberry rust out of there. Um, and it, it was just terrible. Uh, we had two really wet years, the, the years before that. And, um, in 2019, I was gone for a good portion of the summer, so I didn't do a good job of getting the rust out that year, and it was just terrible. Um, apparently, there is a co-host of sedge that elderberry rust needs to, to keep going, and uh, apparently in, dry, in wet years, it's, it's a real um, problem. Uh, so anyhow, that's another one. It's, it's, it's beautiful to look at in some respects, but it, <laughs> it's orange and yellow and, and takes a branch and will twist it all around uh, and then sap all the energy out of the plant. <laughs> but that's, a, that's the only other pest. Oh, and uh, I do have a little bit of a problem with stem borers, but nothing that's overwhelming. With that, we're, uh, we're getting close to the end and wrapping up our podcast for today. So I would again like to thank Mike Breckel for being on, one of our local elderberry producers here in Vernon County, Wisconsin, and also uh, David Handley with the University of Maine as a vegetable and small fruit specialist. We thank you both for joining us today and getting your input and um, learning all about elderberries. So with that, again, we'd like to thank you for joining Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.